the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 29, January 1968. Samuel Pepys, 1633-1703, an important figure in the history of the British Admiralty, left a secret diary which is one of the most entertaining and revealing documents. Pepys, who was quite congenial to a consistently adulterous life, was also a very self-righteous and moralistic man. He was ready to take and to create any opportunity for adultery, but he also wanted to be morally clean. As a result, Pepys worked out a system of moral bookkeeping. In one way or another, he fined himself or made amends to his wife for his sins. Also, he regularly, quote, reformed, unquote, immediately after an act of adultery, when his desires were at a low ebb. One set of rules he made to keep himself, quote, moral, unquote, even included rules about kissing women other than his wife. The first kiss would be free, but every additional kiss would cost him 12 pence to the poor. John Harold Wilson, The Private Life of Mr. Pepys, page 134F. Mr. Pepys was a very charitable man. Mrs. Pepys herself, in various ways, regularly cashed in on her husband's sinning. What Samuel Pepys represented is moralism. The dictionary definition of moralism is that it is the practice of morality without religion. That is, it is a humanistic and man-centered morality. This definition is not entirely accurate because moralism has a religious faith and that religion is humanism. Pepys, for example, wanted to maintain appearances before man and society, and since he believed he was basically sinning against man, he, as man, could also make atonement for his sins. Briefly, Moralism is man-centered, not God-centered in its conception of sin. In Pepys, we have seen the negative side of moralism. Negatively, moralism believes that man can make atonement for his sin, cleanse himself from evil, and right the balance of good and evil. Negatively, the moralist indulges in all kinds of works of atonement as the means of ridding himself from guilt. This is very different from the biblical law of restitution. For the Bible, sin is, first of all, against God in every case. Thus David, in repenting of his adultery with Bathsheba, said to God, quote, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Unquote. Psalm 51.4 It was God's law David had violated, and second, God was also his only Savior. Quote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Unquote. Psalm 51.10 Man is neither creator 
lawgiver, nor savior. Positively, moralism believes that man can save himself and remake himself in the world he lives in. God, if he is acknowledged, is at best a senior partner in this endeavor. Man saves himself and recreates the world. Socialism is a conspicuous form of moralism or humanism. It is a religion of salvation by the works of man, the works of the humanistic state. Marxism is thus moralism compounded. And too many, quote, ex-Marxists, unquote, are simply rebelling against a particular manifestation of moralism in the name of a purer moralism. A telling example of moralism is a book by Stalin's daughter, Zvetlana Alyueva, 20 Letters to a Friend, 1967. The religion she advocates is a one-world religion, in other words, humanism. She reduces Christianity to total love and total forgiveness. She wants us all to, quote, have faith in the power of decency and goodwill, unquote, which is, quote, the same thing, unquote, as faith in God, page 72. In other words, man is the true God, and we must believe in man's essential goodness. Her picture of the communist leaders is along these lines, all of them, including her father, Joseph Stalin, were good men, filled with zeal and goodwill towards men. The only evil man was Berea, who somehow exploited these simple, decent souls and brought about so much evil. Quote, What sterling, full-blooded people they were, these early knights of the revolution who carried so much romantic idealism with them to the grave. Unquote. Page 234. Before we laugh this off, let us remember that Stalin and many others like him saw themselves in these same terms. They were the pure, quote, knights, unquote, waging war against the monsters of capitalism and Christianity, and any who opposed them, including their nearest and dearest friends and relatives, immediately became evil. This is logical. Humanism makes man his own god, and if man is god, then his enemies are devils. And Karl Marx made clear in an early writing that the enemies of the revolution must be seen as devils. It is liberators versus oppressors. All dissent is evil and opposition must be destroyed. The religious fanaticism of socialism rests on this faith. It is moralism, and moralism makes man his own God and his own Savior. When such a man sins, he can also, like Pepys, write the balances according to his own taste. Twelve pence a kiss, four shillings for adultery, or what have you. The socialist makes easy amends for his sins according to his own law, and according to his own law, Whoever sins against him must die. He is the law. The social gospel, modernism, and Arminianism are all moralisms. They believe that man is his own savior by works of law, man's law. The humanism may be dressed up in seemingly Christian language, but its end purpose is the same, to supplant the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of man. Liberal politics, too, is simply moralism. Its anti-Christianity is apparent at a number of points. First, liberalism holds to the sovereignty of man rather than the sovereignty of God. There can be no reconciliation between these two points of view. Sovereignty is a theological concept. It is an attribute of God alone. For this reason, the word, quote, sovereignty, unquote, was strictly avoided in the U.S. Constitution. The entrance of the word came with the rise of Arminianism and Unitarianism. Second, 
The characteristic doctrine of liberalism is equality. The Bible is anti-equalitarian. The doctrine of predestination is a total negation of the concept of equality. Modernists often cite Galatians 3.28 as, quote, proof, unquote, of equality. Quote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, unquote. Now the point of this verse and the entire passage is simply that with respect to God, not with respect to human society, all distinctions are equally worthless before God's sovereignty in electing grace. We stand before God in Christ's work, not in terms of human status. In terms of society, we are male and female, and many things more, but in terms of God, nothing we are gives us any credit before God. We are saved by grace. This verse, instead of asserting equality, asserts God's sovereign in electing grace. Third, liberalism tries to build the civil government and the social order on humanism rather than on scripture. Every civil government is a religious establishment. All civil law rests on moral law, and all moral law presupposes a religion. When a state begins to alter its laws and constitution, it is because it has altered or changed its religion. Moralism is thus the morality of humanism. It is a works religion and a works morality. When such a faith appears within the church, it is not to be regarded as a variation of Christianity. When such a faith appears within the church, it is not to be regarded as a variation of Christianity, but as anti-Christianity. Its goal is always the same, to enthrone man as his own God and Savior. It may have a facade in form of Christianity, as Samuel Pepys did, but moralism is always anti-Christian. It tries to set the world right by man-made gimmicks, but from the Christian perspective, the end of moralism is always immoralism. The only hope of men and nations is therefore in Christ. Quote, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Unquote. Psalm 127, 1. Calcine Report number 30, February 1968. Want to subvert a social order and sound noble and beautiful doing it? It's easy. Demand love and forgiveness for everybody and everything. With, quote, love and forgiveness, unquote, on a total basis, you can destroy all laws, empty prisons, handcuff justice, and make evil triumphant. Unconditional love is a more revolutionary concept than any other doctrine of revolution. Unconditional love means the end of all discrimination between good and evil, right and wrong, better and worse, friend and enemy, and all things else. Whenever anyone asks you to love unconditionally, they are asking you to surrender unconditionally to the enemy. Unconditional love is contrary to the Bible. The charge of the young prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, to King Jehoshaphat was blunt. Quote, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Unquote. Second Chronicles 19.2 The commandment is, quote, Ye that love the Lord, hate evil, unquote, Psalm 97.10. And the prophet Amos repeated it, quote, Hate the evil, and love the good, and establish judgment in the gate, an example in the city council, unquote, Amos 5.15. David could therefore say of himself in speaking of his obedience, quote, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? 
and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies, unquote. Psalm 139, 21, and 22. We are told to love our enemies, that is, those who offend us personally on non-religious and non-moral issues. When the cause of division is petty and personal, we must rise above it with an attitude of law and justice. We must continue to extend to all such persons the full protection of the law from injustice, malice, and false witness. But the enemies of God's justice and God's law, of fundamental law and order, must not be loved. To love them is to condone their evil. The accusation of the psalmist is to the point, quote, When you see a thief, you delight to associate with him, and you take part with adulterers, unquote. Psalm 50, 18, Berkeley Version. What we condone morally, we also approve of or delight in. St. John forbade hospitality to those who were trying to subvert the faith. Quote, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Unquote. 2 John 10, 11. Those who preach unconditional love are simply trying to disarm godly people in order that evil may triumph. The same is true of the idea of unconditional forgiveness. Forgiveness in the Bible is always conditional upon true repentance. Unconditional forgiveness is simply the total, unconditional toleration of and acceptance of evil. It demands that we accept the criminal, the pervert, the degenerate, the subversive as they are. But to do so means that we must change. We must surrender our laws, faith, religious standards, and all godly order. The demands for unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness are demands for total change on our part, total revolution in society. They are, in reality, demands that we commit suicide in order that evil may live. Anyone who subscribes to the doctrines of unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness is either a fool or a knave, and very probably both. These doctrines demand a love of evil and a hatred of good and they are aimed at the destruction of godly law and order. This anarchistic, anti-Christian doctrine of love erodes law and brings in a breed of sentimental, antinomian, in example, anti-law, preachers, and a breed of lawless rulers, politicians, and bureaucrats who have no regard for law and cater to feelings, and mob feelings increasingly govern them. There are basically four kinds of politicians— First, there are the professional, practical politicians who are men without principles and who are basically interested in staying in office. There are many such men today. They respond basically to pressure and to money. Principles do not move them. Self-interest does. The less godly law and order there is in an age, the more these practical politicians respond like weather vanes to pressure. They are the creatures of the establishment of the mob, and of any and every force that blows their way. They are weather vanes. Second, there are the idealists in politics. And I here use the word idea and idealist in its original meaning. An idealist is a man who has an idea, ideal pattern, or goal to which he tries to push humanity. 
The ancient Greeks, especially Plato, were great idealists, and their legends also contained the best satire on idealism in the myth of the robber Procrustes, who either stretched his victims to fit his standard bed, or else amputated them if they were too long. This is the technique of the idealist, whether he be Marxist, Fabian, or Democratic. The idealist will sacrifice man and God to achieve his ideal communist, socialist, or democratic order. The idealist, whether Plato, Rousseau, Marx, or a contemporary liberal, believes that it is the environment which is evil and man who is good. Since man is good, who is better and more trustworthy than the elite man, namely himself, the idealist? The idealist is thus a moral monster who confuses himself with God and seeks to destroy the world in order to remake it in the terms of his ideal. Since he sees no evil in himself, he is intensely dangerous, and the first step towards remaking the world is for him the destruction of God's world, which means a dedication to revolution. Our politics today is saturated with idealism. Third, some men enter politics in anger at the knaves who predominate in it, at the weather vanes, and at the Procrustean idealist. These men lack faith. They are governed by nostalgia for the past, or love of the past, not by a systematic body of principles, by a religious philosophy and faith, which guides their whole being. The longer they remain in politics, the more they become cynics. They begin with a love of country and a love of their fellow citizens. They end with a contempt for their stupid fellow men. The cynic thinks of man as a pig and a dog, a fool to be conned. The next step, which he often takes unconsciously, is to become himself the con man who takes the greedy fools for everything they have. The purpose of the cynic in politics becomes then power, naked power, although in early stages he does not always recognize it. Abe Ruth, the most notorious politician in California history, began as an idealist bent on reforming society and ended as a cynic who organized his powerful, quote, system, unquote, to control the state. Napoleon, too, began as an idealist, an earnest believer in the revolution, but he changed his mind during the Egyptian campaign. He decided that men were a little better than dogs, governed basically by lust, hunger, and greed, and he began to move in terms of exploiting that situation. The cynic in politics is thus a dangerous man also, and we have them with us. Fourth, the Christian in politics is governed not by his dreams or by man's sin, but by God's law. His perspective is not man, but God. He moves in terms of objective law, in terms of fundamental justice. His purpose is to place himself, man, and society under God, and under godly law and order. Because he believes in the sovereignty of God, he refuses to accept the sovereignty of either man or the state. He believes in limited powers and limited liberties for both man and the state, a principle early established in America by the Reverend John Cotton and basic to American constitutionalism. This, then, is the Christian in politics, a rare man these days. In the churches, we have similar men, and the Christian is almost as rare as in politics. Some years ago, I heard a churchman holding now one of the highest positions in a major branch of the church 
describe in my presence the ideal symbol of a true church, a weather vane. There was one on top of the very large church where he was speaking. The weather vane, he said, meant sensitivity, and the church could be sensitive to the people and to, quote, revolutionary ferment, unquote. I asked him later if the weather vane did not suggest to him a symbol of spinelessness and no personal standards, no caliber of resistance to evil. He answered that he had never thought of it in that way. But to return to love, modern doctrines of love are simply doctrines of anarchism, of total receptivity to evil. Their purpose is to break down the differentiation between good and evil and to produce lawlessness. Modern sensitivity training has this function. It is a part of the love religion. It demands total receptivity to the world and a submission to it rather than a resistance to evil in terms of God's law. Its goal is to teach a love of evil and a hatred of good. The love religionists and love politicians are also strong advocates of equalitarianism and of equal rights causes. Total equality means that good and evil are on the same level and without differentiation. Evil must then have equal rights with good, and the criminal must have equal rights with the good citizen. This means that the criminal must have the same freedom to rob and kill that you want in order to support your family and worship God. Strict champions of equal rights like the Marquis de Sade, whose works are now being translated and published, demand precisely this, equal rights for the criminal, which means simply that the criminal has a right to rob and kill you, and you have a duty to submit to him, or else you will violate his rights. The goal is total revolution. The language is love, forgiveness, and sensitivity. Its function is subversion and destruction. Solomon said it wisely long ago, quote, To everything there is a season, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace, unquote. Ecclesiastes 3, 1, and 8. We had better know it. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Hey
embrace him and go. Oh, how precious Jesus is to us as the husband of the bride to be. Tell the world of his wrath, tell the world of his love, Christ has set you free, set you free. He is the Lord of life to me. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.